Chris, amazing. Will you guys open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3? Ephesians chapter 3. As Matt Ng emails that picture to the Preachers and Sneakers Instagram account, we will open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. And I want to start by talking about the plan for the weekend, the, the theme that I had in mind as soon as Chris and I talked about retreat and what he'd been talking about in Romans and, and where I'm thinking about going in the fall. And one thing to know, if you have practical questions about me shepherding GOC, uh, we're going to talk about that tomorrow night and talk a little bit about Chris's plans for ministry. Uh, this weekend isn't about he and I, it's about you guys and about uh, the ministry of the word. So we'll just do a real brief Q&A tomorrow night, and then we'll do senior night uh, as normal uh, traditions are. But what I want to talk about is the plan for the, the teaching this weekend, which will dribble over into uh, the final two weeks of GOC. Uh, I've been thinking a lot lately about the book of Ephesians, and there's a passage that I want to look at with you tonight, Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, that really will set the stage for the rest of the sessions this weekend. There will be three talks this weekend, one tonight, one tomorrow morning, and one Monday morning. And then two more talks that will be retreat part two, but it will be in Westwood uh, at GOC on Friday nights. And so I have five messages altogether on the love of God. And that may seem like a simple topic to you, uh, but I think it's a very difficult topic to cover and five messages won't even come close to scraping the surface of the love of God I think the love of God is one of the hardest topics in all of Christian theology and I my guess is that that doesn't sound right to you but I hope to show you tonight what a profound topic it is not just in its difficulty though I think that's going to be part of the profundity of the love of God, but it's harder to think carefully and to meditate deeply on the love of God than it is to think about other doctrines that are challenging, like the sovereignty of God. It's way easier to talk about the sovereignty of God than the love of God. It's far easier to talk about the holiness of God, something that most people don't understand automatically, the holiness of God, but... It's something that's easy, more easily defined. Let me set it up this way. The love of God, according to noted evangelical scholar D.A. Carson, is one of the most difficult doctrines in the Bible. In fact, he wrote a little book that I found very helpful called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. So I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how is something that I heard when I was in Sunday school... Uh, if you grew up in the church, or when I memorized John 3.16 as a little kid growing up in Sunday school, uh, how is that such a profound and difficult doctrine? Well, D.A. Carson gives five reasons, and I'll give them to you really fast, because I think that they'll help us think about why we need to think about the love of God. And number one, the overwhelming majority of people believe that God is a God of love, even if those people just vaguely believe in the concept of God. In other words, if you walk around campus on any day of the week and talk to someone who's not a Christian, but who believes in God, you could find someone like that, 
who believes that there is a higher power, that there is a God, they will likely believe that that God that they have imagined in their minds is indeed a God of love. You can see this portrayed in popular culture, in, in movies where, where God, maybe like a, a Star Wars kind of a movie where there's an impersonal force and there's some kind of the, the newer additions to the Star Wars canon. Uh, I don't know how you feel about those, but they portray uh, the force as this loving, benevolent kind of dualistic concept. But in that uh, just imaginary human-made conception of a higher power, there's a kind of love. There's space alien movies where the person finally encounters this strange glowing light of higher being and they describe being overtaken by a sense of love or any kind of standard hippie that says, you know, love is God and God is love, man. So that kind of concept makes the doctrine of the love of God very difficult because people assume it to be true without understanding how the love of God works out in biblical theology, how the love of God corresponds to other attributes of God, of the real God, not of an imaginary God who is more defined by a concept of love that is subjective to a person than it is to a quantitative understanding or a doctrine that is the love of God, actually. Number two. So first, overwhelming majority of people believe that God is a God of love, even if they're not a Christian, but they have no biblical sense to it. Number two, we live in a culture where the other truths that complement the love of God in the Bible are widely rejected. Truths like the sovereignty of God. And now we're talking not just about the culture at large, but we're talking about Christian culture too. Most, many Christians do not believe in the kind of love that the Bible describes that would be called electing love or special love. And so, because our culture rejects things like the sovereignty of God and I'm talking about the random person you encounter who believes in a vague idea of God, or I'm talking about uh, a kind of Christian who does not have a doctrinal bone in their body and, and thinks that uh, they have a conception of God, but it doesn't correspond with other important truths about God which are generally rejected. God's holiness, God's justice, God's sovereignty, God's electing love, that, those kind of things. Uh, so that makes it hard to think carefully about the love of God. Third, the only heresy in our world, according to Dr. Carson, who wrote a big fat book called The Gagging of God about this, is that there is no such thing as heresy. In other words, uh, the third reason it's hard to think about the love of God very carefully is because people uh, reject nothing. They don't, there's, there's nothing that people reject except for someone saying that they're wrong. That's what doesn't stand. The idea of exclusive truth in a pluralistic age is very unpopular. In other words, to say you're a Christian is a fine thing, but to tell someone else that it's not okay that they are not a Christian and that God demands that he be worshiped only through Jesus Christ is a very offensive thing to say to a pluralistic culture. 
And that makes understanding and communicating the love of God very difficult in our world today. Reason number four in Dr. Carson's list of why this is a difficult doctrine is because of the challenge. He calls it the challenge of the 20th century. The 20th century brought us such things as the atomic bomb, as two world wars, a person named Hitler, and a number of evil genocides that reminded and shocked a world that perhaps had a sentimental understanding of the love of God that this planet is not a pretty place and that human history has seasons in it and periods of it, in it of such extraordinary evil and darkness that it's, it's, it, it's not okay to just assume that you can say without any problem whatsoever, God is a God of love. How do you say to a suffering world that God is a God of love? How do you say to those who were impacted by the Holocaust that God is a God of love? This is why the doctrine of the love of God is indeed difficult. Fifth and finally, uh, Dr. Carson says that one of the greatest problems we face in thinking carefully about the love of God is that people think it's easy and obvious. It's easy and obvious. And this is that overly simplistic understanding of the love of God, not taking into account the complexity and richness of the way the Bible communicates the love of God, which is what we're going to talk about in the next five sessions. Three this weekend, two in weeks to come. What do I mean by it's not easy and obvious? Well, the Bible communicates that there is a peculiar kind of love that God has. A special love, an electing love. Uh, the Bible communicates another kind of love, that there is a providential love that God has for things like birds and plants and all creation, that he upholds all things. It wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to look at his disciples who are being anxious and tell them not to worry because God cares for sparrows if God hates sparrows. It doesn't make any sense. So God actually cares about creatures in his providence. This is a particular kind of love that's different than the love God has for the people of Israel or for the people he redeemed and brought into his family. And so there's some complexities. There's some texture. Uh, what about the love that God has for all people, even non-elect people? God has a kind of love that is, I would describe it as a salvific stance towards all people. And I don't think you can wiggle out from under verses like John 3.16 that say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The way that John uses the word world is not restrictive in the book of John. When he talks about the word world, he's talking about the whole world and his emphasis whenever he uses the word world in the book of John is the badness of the world. The badness of the world. So those who try to say that God doesn't love the world, he only really, really, really loves the elect or Christians don't have it right. There is a salvific stance. There is a, a benevolence, a, a kind of love that God has for those who even reject him. And that is more of the complexity of the love of God. And there's even for you, if you're a Christian, a conditional love of God. And that sounds really weird, doesn't it? 
But if you read Jude 21, it says, keep yourself in the love of God. So there is a way to be underneath the love of God, and there is a way to be out from underneath the love of God and still be a Christian. What does it mean? I don't know. We're not talking about that tonight. All that just to say, not to make your head spin, but to get you to go, okay, wait a minute. Maybe the love of God is something of profundity. Maybe it is something complex. Maybe this is a point of theology worth considering. And so the love of God is a difficult doctrine. Let me also say by way of introduction to this passage in Ephesians 3 that the love of God is an important doctrine. It's an important doctrine. You need this doctrine. Christians want hints and tips. Christians love rules to obey because it's so much easier. Tell me to do the five things and I'll do them. Tell me the two hints of having a a godly relationship with another believer and I'll do the two hints. Tell me what I shouldn't do. Give me 10 things that I shouldn't do and I could follow those things. But those things are not how a Christian grows. Those things are not primarily emphasized in the Bible. Instead, Christians of a prior generation meditated on truths theological, especially the truth of the love of God. I'm willing to say that there is no greater help that you could find in your Christian life than meditating or learning to meditate on the love of God in Christ. That if you struggle with sin, that if it has tangled you up, some kind of secret sin that you haven't told anyone about, I would argue that meditating on the love of God would be one of the most important ways to work against and fight against that sin. I would argue with you that if you feel stagnant in your Christian life, if you feel like you're not growing like you used to, that I don't have a new book for you to read or, or a hint and tip to give you, but instead I would encourage you to start this weekend learning to meditate on the love of God. It is a doctrine of such depth and profundity that it has been the prominent doctrine focused on by those who have sought to lead God's people in worship, from King David to Isaac Watts to Chris Tomlin to Riley. That's the line of succession. <laughs> so, every song we sang tonight emphasized the love of God. Nearly every song in the hymnal at church mentions the love of God. Because the love of God is of such profound value and help to a Christian soul. So that's what we're going to do this weekend. We're going to talk about the love of God tonight. I want to introduce you to the topic through this passage that is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, a letter circulated to the early church uh, that shows the heart of Paul unlike any other letter. You really see who he is because he shows us repeatedly his concern for the church in prayer. Ephesians is full of prayers, and tonight's passage, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, is prayers. Tomorrow morning, I think I'd like to help you think about the God of the Old Testament. 
then answer the question, is the God of the Old Testament a God of love? Remember, he insisted on entire populations being decimated in holy war. So how can you, dear Christian, say that God is a God of love who would insist on that kind of violence and prohibit things that our culture identifies as love, such as homosexuality? So I want to talk about, is the God of the Old Testament really a God of love tomorrow morning? And then on Monday, I want to talk about the deep love of Jesus. And then at GOC, we'll figure out what we're going to talk about. I got two more. I have probably 56 sermons in the love of God. I'm turning it into five. Don't, don't press me for the final two. Okay, so tonight, what we're looking at is this passage in Ephesians chapter 3. And I really want this to be helpful to your soul. And I'd like to teach you tonight how to meditate on the love of God. Let me start by reading this passage to you. Ephesians 3, verse 18, says, And I pray that you, backing up into verse 17, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And he concludes his prayer, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The knowledge of the love of God is the highest knowledge of all. The knowledge of the love of God is the subject of Paul's prayer for these Ephesian believers. If you'd like to read the story of Ephesians, you can read in the book of Acts how the gospel came to this place, a place that was fascinated by power magic, sorcery, witchcraft, a culture that was rife with idolatry. And when the gospel came there, it was such a tumultuous thing that it upset the entire world that they knew. The people who had formerly worshipped idols and formerly channeled demonic spirits now had experienced the pure and holy power of the Holy Spirit of God in washing them and forgiving them and making them new. And so Paul had a special burden for these believers that he evangelized and pastored. And this letter was one that was circulated to all the churches in that first century world, but became attached to these believers in Ephesus because of the themes and emphases that Paul makes. He talks about the church. He talks about his ministry to them. He talks about practical things. He talks about theology. But the theme that runs throughout Ephesians is the theme of love. And it's in this prayer, without giving you a whole study of the book of Ephesians, that we see that his desire is that they would be rooted and grounded or rooted and established in love. And it isn't just a horizontal manifestation of love. In other words, it's not like 
1 Corinthians 13, which is talking about love that the Corinthians should have for one another. Here in this passage, it's talking about the love that God has for them. And you can see that because it says in verse 18 that they may have power together with all the saints to grasp or to understand the height, depth, breadth, and length of the love of Christ. And that would be the love that Christ has for them. The love that God has through Christ for the believers. And that they would know a love that surpasses knowledge. That they would be filled to a measure of all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer, built on the other prayers in the letter to the Ephesians, is focused on us, the believers that receive this letter, understanding and having knowledge of and being able to meditate on the love of God. If your understanding of the love of God is deficient, and I think all our understanding is deficient according to what he teaches us in these verses, then his prayer for you and his desire in this passage is for you to learn to think about it better. Now, he uses an oxymoron here, which is better than a regular moron. It's a figure of speech that contradicts itself, right? An oxymoron. That's like me giving you tips on dieting. It's an oxymoron. <laughs> it is. So, Paul says, look at verse 18, that... We would know this love that surpasses knowledge. How do you measure something that's immeasurable? How do you fathom something unfathomable? Paul uses this intentionally to try to show you that your knowledge of the love of God in Christ is incomplete. That it could, in fact, never be complete. That there is no knowledge like the knowledge of the love of God in Christ. That it is the highest knowledge. And knowledge isn't a bad thing. Knowledge has tendencies that are dangerous, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. Not sure who just attacked me on my first day, but I think I defeated them. So I tell you about knowledge. <laughs> knowledge has tendencies that... <laughs> I'm sorry, Riley, I broke your stuff. <laughs> knowledge. Knowledge. You're studying things. Microbiology, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, uh, psychobiology. Psychobiology. That's not a, <laughs> that's not a thing. <laughs> that biology is psycho. So... <laughs> You're studying these things, and you're, you're deriving great benefit from that knowledge. Knowledge is beneficial. Knowledge has a dangerous tendency, 1 Corinthians 8 says, to puff up. But that isn't to belittle knowledge. That's just a warning to go along with knowledge. I mean, all kinds of knowledge is beneficial. How to start a fire. That, that's good knowledge if you're stuck in the woods. Not here. They have heat and stuff. Uh, how to cure... Diseases is something you're learning in medical school. I mean, all those points of knowledge are so important and so significant. All knowledge is important. All knowledge is significant. Certainly the knowledge of God is of great significance. What Paul is saying in this passage is that these 
Ephesians, these believers need to know the love that surpasses knowledge. That the knowledge of the love of God is something that is exclusive to saints' understanding. That in order to really understand the love of God, you have to be a saint. That's why he's talking about these people in verse 16 being strengthened in their inner man by the Spirit of God with Christ dwelling in their hearts through faith. The prerequisite to meditate on the knowledge of God is to know God through Christ. But once you know Him, the infinite nature of that immeasurable love being the highest of all knowledges, higher than any earthly knowledge, and the highest of all Christian doctrines is to remind us that this is an immeasurable pool we're diving into. This is something that only saints can comprehend who've been strengthened by the Spirit, who've been prepared in their inner man, who are rooted and grounded in Christ, who are the only ones who are fully able to begin to advance in our knowledge of God. And it's not about our love for Him. That's not what this passage is talking about. This passage and most of the passages in the Bible that talk about God's love are focused on His love for us. So that's the subject of our meditation tonight. Why is Paul talking about this? I think what triggered Paul, I think you say triggered, what triggered Paul in this line of thinking is his case about the enormity of the church. He's been trying to convince them that they are part of something that is a grand scheme of God he calls a mystery in chapter 2. And the mystery is the incorporation of the Jews and the Gentiles into one body in Christ. It's the outworking of God's eternal plan in the church. He says that they are being built into a temple and that this is a temple that has eternal qualities, that God lives in this temple, that the temple that Israel used to worship in is obsolete, but now the people of God are a temple and are the habitation of God and will eternally be the habitation of God in this temple, okay? And I think him thinking about the significance of the temple, the significance of you being a believer, of God dwelling in you, of him working in and through you, now and forevermore, causes him to think about the enormity of the plan of God, the enormity and vastness of God's dwelling with his people, the vast greatness of his plan for the church, and he knows that all of it is rooted and grounded in the reality of the love of God in Christ. That that is the key to understanding God's motive for the gospel. Now we know that God does what he does for his glory. And Ephesians speaks of his glory in verse 21. But the cause of uh, all things being the glory of God does not preclude other things from working alongside of the purposes of God. The love of God isn't against the glory of God, is what I mean by that. And so he wants them to understand that though the knowledge of the love of God is beyond measure, beyond computation, we must press in to learn about it. We must advance in our understanding of the knowledge of God. It is the most glorious theme in all the Bible. It's astounding, and we will spend all eternity to continually dive into and delve into and explore the depths of the love of God for lowly creatures like us. And so he thinks about it in a dimensional way, if I could say that. 
he thinks about it in a geometrical way. He thinks about the dimensions of the love of God. And he calls them by four names. So to understand the vastness and the immeasurable love of God, I want to look at these four words tonight. And the four words are the four dimensions of the love of God to help you meditate and understand how it could be that the divine one, that God through Christ loves you. I want that to be what you're thinking about this weekend and the weeks to come. And I, I think it will be of such extraordinary help to you. And I think if you're looking for intellectual theological stimulation, it will do that. But more importantly, if you're looking for devotional, spiritual help on the planet that seems so often against you, and if you're discouraged, and if your heart is mild with love for God, I want to move you towards meditating on the love God has for you. Because God loves you. And let the Apostle Paul show you how much. Four words. The first is breadth. Breadth. He says to grasp how, how wide or, or the breadth of the love of God. What is the breadth of the love of God? Well, I think the best place to think about that would be the book of Revelation. That seems to me to be the place where the breadth or the wideness of God's love is best shown. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, after looking to the Lamb who was slain and the four living creatures encircle the Lamb and the elders and the description there, when you get down to verse 9, it says, and they sang a new song. And this powerful song goes like this. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Verse 11. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering Thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Verse 13. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. As you explore the book of Revelation, the thing that will repeatedly strike you in the images that John uses in his vision that he received from Jesus Himself, is the vastness and the international nature of God's people. He uses words like myriads, thousands upon thousands. He uses words intended to amplify the breadth, the wideness of God's love. And that's so important for us to think about because when you walk around on campus, 
you don't feel as a Christian that you're in the majority, do you? When you think about the other 50,000 students at your school, or whatever the number is, you don't think, well, most of us love Jesus. Not even close. When you listen to your professors, when you work on projects with your classmates, when you interact on a social level in your dorms, or when you just casually stroll through the throngs of people on campus, you do not feel like you are very many as far as Christians and their power goes, their prominence, their presence. You probably feel very small. When you calculate your Instagram followers, 39, 57. And then you look at the influencers and the hundreds of thousands of followers they have. You probably don't feel like Christians have a very loud voice. And even when you read the Bible sometimes and you hear disciples coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, are only a few being saved? You may have a tendency, like I do, to think narrow is the way. Few will find it. But if you take all of the Scripture's teaching about God's entire plan for His people, you will see there is a wideness in God's love that in the end will be demonstrated. Not when you get to heaven going, man, there's a lot of room around here. It's just me and you know, half a GOC. No offense. That's not how you'll feel. You will be overwhelmed by how many people are worshiping God. When you look through church history and the history of God's working from creation to redemption, you will see an incalculable number of worshipers. Granted, it's few compared to all the countless people who reject Christ. But in the end, when it is presented in its final scene of glorious worship, God will reign supreme. And millions upon millions of worshipers will surround His throne. And that will be an overwhelming scene. And what's marking that scene is how wide it is. How generous it is. You will look at the worshipers and you will join in that throng if you are a follower of Jesus and you will be stunned by the magnitude and volume and nature of that crowd. You will see people who came from places you have never even heard of. You will see people who speak languages that you don't even know the name of. And it will be the most eclectic, and diverse, and broad group of people that you have ever seen in your entire life. It won't look like any concert you've ever been to that fills the Staples Center. It won't look like the Hollywood Bowl. It won't look like Coachella. It won't look like any kind of gathering of human beings that you've seen on this earth. It will be grander, and it will be wider, and it will be absolutely overwhelming to all your glorified senses, and you will join the song and say, worthy is the Lamb. His blood that was 
was poured out for us, redeemed us. And your voice will join with this massive throng of worshipers. And you will be amazed at how wide God's love is at the breadth of it. That's the dimension he wants you to grasp as he thinks about the 3D nature of God's love. It begins with understanding the breadth of his love for mankind. That God is not stingy in distributing salvation. That God by nature is a savior and he is saving countless people and has been since he first made a way for those sinners in the garden to be made right with him and he will continue to do so until that final trumpet sounds and on that day we will all be amazed at the vast nature of the love of god second that next word is the length the length of the love of god and length there your bible may say uh, how long it is is a word that i think has a temporal sense to it in other words now as we try to measure the immeasurable love of god we're talking about the length of god's love in other words how long has he loved you eternity and if you're into math it's one of these kind of things is not something with a beginning and it's not something with an end. And as Paul has already described the divine perspective on salvation in chapter 1 using big theological concepts like election and predestination, that God set his love on people before the people even existed, you start to see why Paul would say that there is a longness to God's love. If God loves you, and if you have faith in Christ... He does love you. I want you to know this. He's loved you forever. He's always had his love set on you personally. I mean, can you handle that? It wasn't just that day that the Sunday school teacher sat you down and you prayed a prayer. It's not then when God started to love you. It won't only go to that day when you finally, in hospice care, breathe your last breath. God will love you past that time. The nature of God's everlasting love is that His love has always been set, not just on Christians or believers or His people generally, but on you specifically. That's why your name is written in a book and it was written in the Lamb's book of life, according to the book of Revelation, before the foundations of the world. So, before God spoke this whole thing into existence, the whole entire planet, in all its diversity and amazing creativity, before this universe came into being, He wrote your personal name in His book. He set his love on you. And after you are dead and gone, 
And after your grandchildren don't remember your name anymore and their grandchildren don't have record of you anymore, you will still be the object of the eternal love of God. That's what it means that God's love is everlasting. That's how long it is. Take the scope of his plan. That's the mystery that he's trying to unfold to the Ephesians to show them that this was God's plan from the beginning. And this is one of the things that Israel got wrong. They didn't understand the breadth, nor did they understand the length of God's love. They traced their lineage very proudly back to Abraham, a moon worshiper from Ur. And they said, God chose Abraham, and therefore everybody who's related to Abraham, God loves us and us alone. They didn't understand his plan. They didn't understand the mystery. They didn't understand these dimensions of the breadth and the length of God's love. That God was loving people and creating people for his glory and for his family far before Abraham. That God, before people even existed, had already chosen them. And this is where our Presbyterian friends can help us with something that they call the covenant of grace, which you won't find in the Bible, but conceptually I'm cool with it. That God made a plan with the Son in eternity past, which is another oxymoron, like me teaching you about dieting, because you can't do eternity past. You get it. That God made a covenant with His Son to display the richness of His grace through the salvation of sinners. This is before humans existed. This is before the fall in Eden. This is before this building collapsed from thunder. Way before all of that. The covenant of grace is a concept of God's eternal dealings. More biblical terminology would be uh, things like God's plan of salvation or the mystery unfolding or the concept of predestination. All these individual things point back to that concept that Before this world existed, God set his love on you personally. This gives us a taste of the length of God's love. It's why the psalmist in Psalm 136 says dozens of times, forever is his steadfast love. It's why your name's been in a book before your parents gave you that name. It's why uh, that it's so important that we start to grasp and understand that If God has always loved you, and He has, God will never, ever, ever stop loving you. That's the nature of the extremity and reach and longness of His love. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in preaching on this passage, a sermon you don't need to listen to because you're hearing it right now, basically. Uh talks about the importance of theory before practice. Which makes sense to you in some of the things that you're studying right now. Like if anyone is thinking about studying things atomic, it's better that you work in theory now. Start with theory and then do practice. This is good for practical things, too. Before Ryan learned to fight fires, he was in a classroom and not in a forest. It's just important that you study the theory before you see the practice. And I think that's what we're talking about here. There's nothing I can do to 
help you experience the love of God 10,000 years ago. There's nothing I can do to help you understand and experience or taste the love of God 100,000 years from now. But it's helpful to think about, isn't it? It's challenging. It stretches your mind. It makes you go through this theoretical or theological concept before you could experience it because you're unable to experience it as a finite creature. That's why we're talking about this. You see, you can go back to your room tonight and as your roommate snores their face off and you're unable to sleep because you're so deficient of animal protein. You are, not me. You can stop on your pillow and think about the longness of God's love. And you can think of that on May 25th. How could that possibly be? How on May 25th, 2019, can you think about God's love a million years ago and a million years from now? It's because the theory precedes the practice, the experience. And so when you hear the promise of Jesus, when he says, no one can take you out of my hand, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, when you hear the words of Jesus saying, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, you can trust him and you can believe him because you know how long his love is. What about... The third word, the depth of the love of God. The depth of the love of God. I believe that the depth of the love of God speaks of the unshakable nature of God's love, the immutable nature of God's love. In other words, because of the depth of God's love, there's nothing that you can do to make God not love you. The example I would give you would be the prodigal son. The story that Jesus told where he went and he did everything he could to humiliate his father's name. He made sure that through his wantonness and prostitution and defilement of every kind, his father's name would be destroyed. But much to his surprise, when he finally comes to his senses, and walks towards his dad and sees him on the horizon, his father has loved him all along. His arms are wide open to his wayward son. The fatted calf has been killed. A celebration is in place. A robe is placed on his shoulders, a ring on his finger, and he's wrapped up in a display of affection preceded by his dad, a noble ancient Near Eastern, running with his long skirt thing uh, like a complete fool because he loves his son so much there's nothing that that foolish boy could do to remove himself out from under his father's love in a way that altered the nature of God's inviolable love for the sinner this should help you to see the depth of the love of God the other way we see the depth of of the love of God is in that central place of display of God's love in the Bible, and that is the cross. And we'll talk more about that in our third message. 
But just to take a moment and think about it in terms of Philippians chapter 2, I think there's two ways we see the depth of God's love in Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. The passage talks about God or Jesus emptying himself, of Jesus lowering himself, of not counting equality with God, something that he had to cling on to, but instead relinquishing that right and taking on flesh and being obedient to God even unto the point of death and death on a cross. There's two things happening in that passage. One is a great condensation. Not condensation, because that's on a bottle. (laughs) Condescension. You'd be surprised how often that word gets me. A lot. Condescension. Why don't I just switch it to humiliation? It's the same word, has the same concept. Why do you want to challenge yourself like that, Duncan? Humiliation. Jesus, enthroned on high, the rights and privileges of triune God, surrounded by worshiping angels, enthroned in glory, walked away. Was born, like we sang in that new song tonight, in poverty, in a manger, humiliated, condescending, lowly, subjected himself to human cruelty, we see his love in his humiliation. We also see it in, in Philippians chapter 2 in what he did, dying on a cross. Remember, it was Jesus who said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. But that's not what Jesus did. You see, you and I were not, at the time of Jesus' death, friends of God. The Bible describes us in just the opposite way. We were rebels. We were hating God and hating one another. Our throats, Romans chapter 2, were open graves. The intentions of our heart was evil. We were rebels against God. We hated Him. We fought against Him. We loved our flesh. We loved the lusts of the flesh. We loved ourselves. We were idolaters. We did not worship God, and Jesus died for us. See, a greater love was displayed than Jesus dying for his friends because he died for his enemies. He condescended, and he was a substitute for us. This is how we know we have life. This is how we know we've been made alive. Because Jesus died for us. That's the depth of the love of God in Christ. Finally, what about the height? The height of God's love. I think the passage for that is is also in the book of Ephesians. It's a passage about marriage, except it's not about marriage. Ephesians 5.25 Starting in verse 23, the husband's the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy, holy and blameless. 
Friends, what's the height of God's love for us? I don't think it's talking about altitude with the word height. But I do think it's a reference to heaven and to our future. I think when he talks about height, he's talking about the complexity, the power, the highness, the profundity of God's plan in loving us. Do you realize that God loved you not just so that God could forgive you of all your sins? That is one of the great purposes of God. God died. He sent His Son to die in your place so that in that act of atonement, a substitute would be provided and your sins could be forgiven and you could be made clean. That's one of the reasons Jesus died for you. But that is not the final purpose that God has for you, is for you to be forgiven. That's one purpose. It doesn't end there. The love of God continues. You see, all your sins have already been forgiven. But here you are sitting in a chair. All your sins have been forgiven, but here you are a hundred years from now, buried in the ground and in the presence of God in your spirit. And He's not done with you. You've been forgiven all along. Ever since you, by faith, held on to Christ and trusted Him and gave your life to Him and turned from your sins, you were completely forgiven. And because we're sinners and because we're so aware of the debt of gratitude we have to God, that seems to be the only component of salvation we ever think about. But the heights of God's love is that He doesn't just forgive you, He transforms you. He changes you. He continues to pour His love out on you and He makes you into something else. Into someone else. He makes you like His Son. He brings you into His family. He makes you an heir of all His promises. He makes you a joint heir with Christ. He makes you holy. He makes you new. He makes you His child. You become one of His sons. An inheritor of all He possesses is now yours. And He invites you into His family not only to be a son, but to rule and reign with Him. He glorifies you and He promises that you will be with Him forever this is the height of God's love for you dear Christian God loves you so much that he didn't just forgive you he is remaking you and he is inviting you to be a part of something so far beyond your imagination more than you could ever ask or think more than the power that you've experienced now will be the power you experience then in glory when the lover of your soul who set his affections upon you before you were ever born has made you his child but will keep you forever in his family as he shows to you for all eternity what it is to be an eternal recipient of the love of God in Jesus. That's what your glorious future holds. Not just forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins will be 
far over by then. By then you will be experiencing the love of God in droves, grateful for the forgiveness that you have, but being washed over and over again by waves of the love of God, aware that nothing can take your sonship away from you, that all eternity you are God's child. You are children of the heavenly King, that you belong to Him, and that His love was never easy or obvious, but always the most profound truth you've ever known, that God loves you forever and ever, enough to make you like His Son and to continue to pour His love out on you for all eternity. Christianity isn't about cute lessons and thoughts and hints and tips tips it's the height of god's purposes for you and that's why god's love surpasses knowledge so if you want to love god more begin to learn to meditate with me on the love that god has for you in christ think of its breath in that massive heavenly crowd. Think of its length as he's loved you forever and will do so forevermore. Think of its depth, that he loved a rebel, a traitor, and a sinner. And he never changed his disposition for you, towards you for even a moment. And think of its height in God's inscrutable and awesome purposes he has for you. Father, thank you for your love. We want to be prayed over by the Apostle. We want to be rooted and grounded, established in love, having the power together with all the saints to grasp this width and length and height and depth that is the love of Christ. That we might know the love that surpasses knowledge and that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Father, we thank you for the cross, that greatest manifestation of love that does wash all our sins away, but does so much more. It makes us belong to you. And we're seeing that transformation take place, first in our being born again, and now in our sanctification and growth, however slow it seems to be. You're conforming us to the images of your son and we know that you will glorify us and that we will engage in heavenly joy depth adventure love eternal comprehension of your your love may we start now by thinking deeply about the love that you've shown us in Christ. Thank you for these students. Help them to meditate on these things this weekend as they enjoy rich fellowship, as they worship and pray. Draw them in to understanding your love. In Jesus' matchless name.